0: Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, and Lord willing, we'll uh, get through about three verses today, maybe, maybe just one mostly, but uh, yeah, we've got a lot to cover, so we're going to just jump right in, and uh, we'll just tell you right up front, this is what Pastor Ed seems to affectionately call a Lerman that you're about to hear today. Uh, Not so much a sermon, uh, not so much exactly a lecture, but kind of a mixture of the two. A lerman is what he calls it. So that's what we're doing today. Um, It is gonna be a lot of just important information coming your way. And uh, I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, this might be a good one to take some notes on. But uh, this is a really important topic that we're gonna cover today. And so let's uh, jump into the text and read from God's word. And then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump right in this morning. Colossians 3, and I'm going to read for us from verse 9 through verse 11. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help anytime that we open your word. uh, Holy Spirit, we need you to illumine the eyes of our hearts to see and understand and treasure the great truths that are in your word. And I pray that this morning you would be our help. Uh, Would you be my help, Lord, as I seek to work through some really, really important issues in our culture today? And to decipher these current issues rightly and wisely according to your word. Lord, I need your help. We all need your help, Lord, because we're so susceptible to fall back into worldly ways of thinking. Uh, We are susceptible to start living according to the old self, the old man the old order of this world rather than living according to our new humanity that we have in Christ because we've been resurrected with him if we are in him indeed. And so I do pray that you would just help us today to have light from your word. Praying pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, during the era of slavery in America, a network of routes and places and people helped enslaved people... From all over the south escape to freedom in the north and that path as many of you will know became known as the underground railroad of course not a actual railroad like many elementary school kids get mistaken into thinking but a network of safe houses and routes and places that helped slaves escape from their slavery into their freedom in the north and it was Estimated has been estimated that something over 100,000 slaves made their way to freedom on the Underground Railroad network. And the journey was a dangerous one. And because of that, most of the slaves traveled from place to place at night where they could be under the cover of darkness. And for that reason, the most potent symbol of the Underground Railroad became the North Star. In fact, the North Star was such an important guide to so many that the well-known escaped slave-turned-public figure Frederick Douglass even named the newspaper that he established the North Star. The North Star is technically known as Polaris, and it's the only bright star in our night sky that appears to be stationary in the sky because of the way that it's positioned just right relative to the rotation of the earth. It's the one star in our sky that no matter where you're at in the northern hemisphere, it will always point to true north. And so that's why slaves learned to identify the star and to follow it from the southern United States to freedom In the north, because it was a fixed, unchanging marker that they knew, if I follow that, it leads to my freedom. No matter how lost you thought you were, you could always look into the night sky, find that one star, and know that that is the way north. Now, as we've been studying through Colossians, we've seen that Christ and his word are the north star of the church. That in a world of confusing and always changing standards, we are in desperate need of something that's fixed in our lives that we can keep our eyes on in order to know that we are heading in the right direction. And conversely to that fact, if we are to turn our eyes and focus in any other direction other than that north star direction of Christ and his word, we will find ourselves lost and in grave danger. And unfortunately, in our fallen world, friends, that's not hard to do. That's why we cry out to God in verses that we sing in hymns, like the one we got to sing together in the quarterly gathering last week, the the church's one foundation. Listen to this line in that hymn. We sung, though with a scornful wonder, this is talking about the church, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, By heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, How long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In the book of Colossians, Paul is specifically dealing with distressing heresies. That's what he's dealing with. Heresies that can cause the church to get into great distress there are beliefs that disguise themselves as the north star in our world but in fact they do not point us to true north they will point us in the wrong directions that's the idea of what a heresy is a heresy is simply a belief that is contrary to the truth that God has revealed in the Bible. A heresy is any departure from God's certain, absolute, revealed truth of who he is and of how we come to know him, which is revealed, of course, in his objective, infallible, inerrant, trustworthy word. Paul refers to these heresies in Colossians 2.8. Look with me at Colossians 2.8. Just listen to this to remember what he says here. He says, see to it, and this is a command, see to it, church. That no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a warning that man-made heresies, man-made ideas are going to seek to infiltrate churches everywhere to lead people away from the worship of the one true God. In in over 2,000 years of church history, This warning is just as needed for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. Nothing will destroy the worship and the witness of God's church more quickly and more effectively than heresy. And so Satan, being the enemy of God and being as crafty as he is, is always on his game seeking to get Christians to buy into the lies of heresy. And what I just want to charge you alongside of Paul this morning is to don't take the bait. Don't take it. Now this morning, as I mentioned, I want to do something a little bit different than normal. And what that is, is I want to address a particular heresy that I see infiltrating churches all over the place today. And the reason is because this heresy is unbelievably popular in our culture. And it's a heresy that stands in direct contrast with Paul's teaching in the verses that we're going to be considering together in colossians 3 9 to 11 now the heresy that i'm talking about is technically known to many as critical theory now if you don't know what that means i just want to encourage you to dial in by the end of the morning you're going to have an idea of what this means we're only going to be able to scratch the surface but we'll get a little bit of an idea of what this is and what it means But even if you don't know what that term is, maybe you haven't heard that term critical theory before, let me just tell you right up front that even if you haven't heard that word, the worldview is so prolific in our society, is so dominating in our world that you have most certainly come across its ideas. Critical theory is what drives the primary focus in the academic world. It's what's driving the news world right now. It's what's driving the advertising world, the corporate world, the social media world. And increasingly, we're finding it pop up in the church. And it's dangerous enough that it needs to be addressed together, I think, here this morning. And it especially needs to be addressed in our church because God has made us, in a way that we give such thanks for, a multicultural community. And critical theory, in particular, threatens the makeup of the unity of a multicultural people. As Pastor Russ mentioned just a few months back, we have something like 13 ethnicities, maybe more than that on some Sundays, represented here each and every week. We are a gathered people from every corner of the earth, literally. We are coming together every week to set our hearts from all sorts of nations and peoples and languages and backgrounds on Jesus together, who is our North Star. And what I want for us this morning is to see that few things can rip this beautiful, multicultural community to shreds faster than the heresy of critical theory and their excellent book the critical dilemma which i brought up here today and if i could recommend just one resource and i've read lots of resources on critical theory this would be the one i would recommend in this book that I'm going to be relying on heavily this morning. You go pick this up, you're going to see, okay, I see Brendan was pulling a lot of illustrations and things out of this. Yes, this is a great resource. But in this book, Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer have a chapter that's entitled Ideas That Will Devastate Your Church. And the ideas are common ideas in critical theory. So let me just list some of these, and you can consider whether or not you've heard any of these and perhaps have even come to believe some of these things yourself. These are some of the fundamental ideas of critical theory that these authors are saying will destroy a church. The first is people of color in the U.S. are oppressed. That idea will dis- destroy a church. Now, the authors do a good, a good job in the book of highlighting the fact that critical theorists have redefined the word oppression. And so oppression no longer means in critical theory what ha- it has historically mean, and it definitely doesn't mean the way that we would define oppression according to Scripture. And so when he says people of color in the U.S. are oppressed as an idea that will destroy your church, what he's saying is if you come to accept the idea of oppression that's given in critical theory, you're on 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 a path to disaster. The second idea is that sin is oppression. Sin is oppression. Now, we would say true biblical oppression is sin, but to say that sin is oppression is a false idea. Third, straight white males need to listen. Straight white males need to listen. That idea will destroy your church. Fourth, the Bible was written from the perspective of the oppressed. This is a common claim. The Bible was written from the perspective of the oppressed. One, that doesn't hold up ideologically if you know your Bibles. But two, the underlying idea is a total upheaval of a right biblical interpretation method. And so if you come to embrace that idea, you're going to start coming up with all sorts of wrong interpretations in the Bible, and it will destroy your church. Fifth, whiteness is wickedness. Sixth, justice is part of the gospel. Of course, that's just committing the Galatian heresy, adding to the gospel. The gospel is not what we do. The gospel is what's been done for us by Jesus. Seventh, there can be no reconciliation without justice. That idea will destroy your church because it implies that Jesus hasn't actually reconciled us to himself and to one another that there's something more we have to do. Eight, Christianity is about liberation from oppression. Christianity is about liberate. Now, that's only a false idea because they've redefined oppression. The reality is we are oppressed by sin, but we can't claim that as victims. We have to claim that as culprits. We participate in the wreckage of this world, the oppression of sin. Now, the authors go on to write this at the end of that chapter. These ideas will divide the body of Christ into warring camps based on gender, race, and ethnicity. Perhaps more fundamentally, they will divide the body of Christ into allies and bigots. Regardless of the demographic group to which they belong, allies have done the work. They've done the work. They've been enlightened to their systemic privileges and oppressions and have committed themselves to diversity, equity, and inclusion. In contrast, bigots are blind to their complicity, are committed to protecting their privilege, and desire to maintain the status quo. Any suggestion that, is general, that this generalized way of seeing reality is flawed will be met with accusations of gaslighting and lack of empathy. Scripture will be increasingly interpreted through the lens of lived experience and traditional interpretations will be dismissed as Eurocentric, patriarchal, heterosexist, slaveholder theology. That's what we don't want to happen in our church. We want to see this heresy for what it is, and we want to continue clinging to Christ and his word together. That is the only way, that's the only way that we can rightly build a gospel community for the glory of Christ and the good of the city. We don't want to be a people who are held down from running hard in the way of Jesus together because we're so busy doubting one another or looking upon one another with skepticism or lacking empathy and understanding toward one another. We don't want to get so busy being caught up in the ideology of this world that we take our gaze off of Jesus and start pointing fingers at one another as if if only you had been enlightened according to this truth or that truth. No, no, no. We just need our Bibles. We need God's Word. We need love for one another. And we need to keep our gaze fixed upon our North Star. That is where freedom is found for the church. And that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to first look at what God has, has to tell us about the nature of Christian community in Colossians 3. And then at the end, we're going to turn to some extended application by contrasting that with the worldview of critical theory. So let's jump in first to Colossians 3, 9 to 11. And what we're going to see here is a clear vision of the new humanity. A clear vision of the new humanity. Paul writes, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the, after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, so here's what I want to do through this text. I want us to work back to front here so that we can see the truth of God's word shine through through these three truths. First, we're going to see the new humanity sees Christ as all. Second, the new humanity is multicultural. And third, the new humanity is renewed by God's truth. All right, so first, truth number one, the new humanity sees Christ as all. You see that there at the end of verse 11. The statement that encapsulates the entirety of Colossians up to this point. This is our North Star Statement Church. Paul says to God's people, to the church, Christ is all for you. Christ is all and in all. This is a glorious, beautiful truth that binds Christians together in a more powerful way than any ethnic or cultural similarity ever could. We are a people who have come to say in our own hearts, in our own lives, Christ is all. And because Christ is all, and because he is in all peoples who have trusted in him, he's not just in the Jews. We can and should be able to recognize that we as a church or a community that is only possible in Christ. He is our all, and he is in all. Jew, barbarian, slave, Scythian, free, doesn't matter. Christ is it. Now, what does a Christian mean when we say that Christ is all? He's all. Well, if you remember back in Colossians 1, we walk slowly through that ancient hymn that tells us about Christ, the hymn that's found in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. It's a hymn that reminds us that Christ Jesus is the eternal image of God. Meaning that Jesus isn't a created being the way that we are. He's an eternal being, eternally one with God, the eternal image. And he's also referenced there in that him is the firstborn of all creation. If you remember, we saw that Paul is not saying that Jesus is literally the firstborn of creation, but in a Jewish way of thinking, firstborn referred to the one who had all the rights, all the authority. So in the Psalms, we even looked at a Psalm that Paul more than likely had in mind when he was writing that text that shows that the language of firstborn is used for David, who one, wasn't the firstborn in his own family, but two, in the context of that Psalm, the firstborn is in reference to his kingship. So it's showing he is king. When when Paul says he's firstborn over all creation, it means he is Lord and king over all created things. Nothing is above him. He is above all. And furthermore, we see Paul say that he is the creator of all things. If it wasn't enough to say he's king, if it wasn't enough to say he's one with the father before all ages, if that wasn't enough, Paul wants to remind everyone, oh yeah, and he made you. He created you. So this is the Christ that all men are called to bow the knee to and to worship. But Jesus, we see Paul go on to tell us in that beautiful hymn, didn't remain on his throne up in heaven, removed from this broken world. The scandal of the gospel is that the perfect holy God who created all, took on human flesh and entered into this broken, sinful world as a man. Why? Why? So that he could redeem his people and reconcile a broken world to himself. And so Paul goes on to say Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Meaning that he is the first man to die and to be resurrected to a glorified body that will never die again. And he is therefore our only hope of resurrection as well. He came because our sin, friends, placed us in a hostile position toward the holy God, and there was nothing that we could do about it. We were at enmity with God. We were part of the domain of darkness. We deserved punishment and eternal death because of our disobedience, but Jesus came and lived a perfect human life to please God in our place, and as the only perfect man, he gives his life on the cross as a satisfactory payment, meaning that he took our punishment on himself, eternal death, died for it and gives us his, his uh, perfect righteousness. That's the exchange that Jesus makes on the cross. And he did that to make peace, Paul says, by the shedding of his own blood in our place. And then he's raised to new life on the third day because the Father accepted his sacrifice on behalf of his people and gave him victory over the oppressive domain of sin and darkness so that now through faith in Christ, All who are trusting in Him are brought into His victory. And here's what that means. We're forgiven of our sin. We are at peace with our Creator God. We are guaranteed eternal life with Him. And we are raised with Christ out of the sinful domain of darkness to seek the things that are pleasing to Christ. Is anybody going to say amen to that gospel this morning? That's the gospel that we believe. And that is the binding reality for all of this new humanity. We're a people who've come to see Christ is our all in all. We are people from all over the world who've come to worship Jesus, not just as a mere man, though man he is. We've come to worship him, this Jewish man who claimed to be God as God. So we are all united according to our worship of this one all-encompassing reality, which is the belief that this whole creation was created by Christ for Christ. So our church exists not because we're a comfortable social environment. We don't thrive as a people because we are listening to all these savvy, good, worldly ideas about how we can deal with oppression or whatever else may be out there in the world. We are people who are bound together because all of us have come to know and worship the same one Jewish Savior. He's our Lord, He's our King. He's our righteousness. He is our hope. He is the Lord and sustainer of all things, the all-wise God, the all-knowing God, the all-loving God, the all-powerful God, the all-present God, the God whom we all love and adore with our whole hearts, souls, minds, and strengths, and therefore we want to gather with one another as this new humanity united in Christ to worship him as one. That's the new humanity. So the church is a community of people saved by this one Christ such that we no longer see anything of this world to be our all anymore. Christ is all. And he's in all of us. Let me just put it this way for us because it may help. The Christian affirms statements like this, before I was raised with Christ, my job was all to me. I lived to work. I wanted success and acclaim at the office. I worshiped my promotions, but now Christ is all. Before I was raised with Christ, my family was all to me. And yeah, that led me to deep joy sometimes, but it also led to deep disappointment. I was controlled by whether I was pleasing my family and whether my family was pleasing me. But now Christ is all. Before I was raised with Christ, my freedom to live however I wanted was all to me. I went about doing whatever I wanted, even though it was leading to my destruction. But now Christ is all. Before I was raised with Christ, my reliance on my own religious obedience was all to me. I gauged my progression toward Christ according to my own merit. But now that I see that Christ is in everything required for me to enter back into God's fatherly presence, Christ is all to me. And perhaps the most relevant to the immediate context of this verse. Before I was raised with Christ, my culture, my ethnicity... My background was all to me. My traditions were all to me. My status in comparison to others was all to me. But not anymore. Not anymore. Christ is now all. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. That's the truth that binds the new humanity together. We all have the same North Star. And that's what we do every Sunday when we get together. Every time that we gather, even outside of our Sunday gatherings, and we are building this community with one another. The purpose of the Christian community is to point each other back to the North Star. Don't get off track. Stay on track. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Christ is our all, and he is in all. Now, truth number two, working backwards into the text. The new humanity that Paul is talking about is multicultural. When Paul says there at the beginning of verse 11, here, right there, The location of here is the new humanity. The community of all who now say that Christ is all is a community where ethnic and cultural distinctions are no longer primary. They no longer most deeply define us. Now, that isn't to say that Paul believes that there are no distinctions in the new humanity anymore. In fact, we see that ethnic distinctions seem to maintain their place even in the new heavens. You can look at Revelation 7 9, Revelation 7 9, if you want to see that. And, And we're also going to see as we work our way through Colossians that there are other important distinctions made for the community of the redeemed. There's a distinction that wives have a distinct way to live in relation to their husbands and husbands to their wives. That fathers have a distinct way to live toward their children and children toward their parents. That bond servants have a distinct way to live toward their masters and masters toward their bond servants. So this isn't Paul washing out all difference and saying that there isn't any diversity within this new community. That there isn't any sort of still markers according to the way that he has created us. But it is him making clear that ethnicity and social status in particular should not be dividing markers anymore. Here, he says, there's not Greek or Jew. Now, Greek or Jew in the text here are broad cultural identifications. The Greeks were actually made up of many ethnicities, but they all adhered to a sort of common Greek culture that was known to be very different from a Jewish culture. So Paul says that cultural preference is no longer a reason for division within the new humanity. And then he says there is not circumcised or uncircumcised. Now this distinction is probably made more for the Jews who would have liked to divide themselves from the unclean Gentiles. Right? So Paul is telling the Jews they no longer have any sort of greater standing before God because they are circumcised. Christ is all and he's in all. If Christ is in the Gentiles and Christ is in you, there's no distinction anymore. There's no unclean and clean. Then he says there's no barbarian or Scythian. The barbarians were those who did not speak Greek, and so they're looked down upon in the society. In fact, the word barbarian was a sort of derogatory term. Ba-ba-bar-bar is the way that people said their language sounded, and so they named them the barbarians. It barbarians It's a very derogatory way of speaking. And then the Scythians were an even lower form of barbarian who were often enslaved by the barbarians, So Paul is even saying, even between you barbarians and you Scythians who have these distinctions of importance and class between you, Paul is saying those sorts of distinctions do not divide the church. Slave or free, both worship the same Christ. Christ is all and in all. And so this new humanity then is multicultural. Now is this sort of multicultural community just going to come really easily for us? Are we going to waltz into it and say, man, this is so natural. This is so comfortable. This is so normal and cushy and good. I just feel like this is my people right away and in every way. In one sense, every Christian will be able to say, ah, I can feel these are my people because of the spirit of Christ that unites us. But that doesn't make the minutia of community within a multicultural community easy because we all still struggle with sin. And you know what the sin struggle leads us to do? I want my own way. I want it to be the way I like it. I don't want to listen. I don't want to give preference to other people. I don't want to hear out the way that other people like to do life and practice things. I don't want to hear the way that other people like maybe the music to sound within the church. We like to shut that kind of stuff off so that we can insist on our own way and have our own preferences. And that makes multicultural community really difficult. And so we're not going to pretend like this is just a really easy thing to do. But because it's hard. Paul gives us what you could call community standards in verses 12 to 17. And that's what we're going to get to look at next week. But suffice it to say for now, the church isn't a place where we get together with all of the people who look like us and talk like us and think like us. The church is the community of the redeemed, a new humanity that God has created, into the, creating into the image of Christ that is from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And we gather because we confess the same Lord. Amen? Amen? All right. Truth three, the new humanity is renewed by God's truth. Renewal within this new humanity occurs according to God's truth, not according to man's philosophy. So important to realize. And we're not going to go into much detail on this one because we made the point when we looked at verses 9 and 10 a couple of weeks ago. But in verses 9 and 10, we see that God's people are governed by the truth of God's word. There in verse 9 he says, this is a people where we do not lie to one another. And that doesn't mean necessarily these individual falsehoods so much. No, what Paul more so has in mind is that this is a people that live according to the truth. That's what it means to not live by lies. We live according to God's objective standard of truth. We no longer participate in the domain of darkness. Leave all those lies to Satan and his schemes. That's not... something that's supposed to be present in God's church. We live according to truth. So here's the important point that we need to remember. The entire world, friends, the entire world, which is defined by Paul as being part of the domain of darkness, the entire world is chasing after the wrong star. The church is, is the only people on earth that stay fixed on true north and we stay fixed on true north by saying tether to christ and his word And that's why the church cannot follow after other popular philosophies that the world treasures the world's heading in the wrong direction it's on the wrong course it lives by lies that's what it means to be of the domain of darkness and one of those lies is critical theory Okay, so let's turn now to consider some of its claims. We're going to look at the critical theory worldview, because it is a worldview. Critical theory isn't just a few random abstract ideas out there in the ether that we can either find help from or not. Critical theory is an all-encompassing worldview. You can't just be partial critical theorists and partial not. It's an all-or-nothing sort of a thing, and a critical theorist would tell you that. So first, let's see the problems. Let's see the problems of critical theory worldview. What kind of problems does it create? And in truth, church, you'd have to have your head shoved into a deep, deep hole to not see the different manifestations of critical theory all over our culture today. But here's just a few examples for you so that we can start to see some of these problems. In 2017, the New York Times published an article entitled can My Children Be Friends with White People? by Ikau Yanka. Now, Ikau Yonka is a black professor of law at Yeshiva University. And in that article, she tells us how she will wisely disciple her children, and these are her words. I will teach them to be cautious. I will teach them suspicion. I will teach them distrust. Much sooner than I thought I I would, I will have to discuss with my boys whether they can truly be friends with white people. I will teach my boys to have profound doubts that friendship with white people is possible. When they ask, I will teach my sons that their beautiful hue is the fault line. Spare me platitudes of how we are all the same on the inside. I first have to keep my boys safe, and so I will teach them before the world to show them this particular brand of rending, violent, often fatal betrayal. These are the ideas of critical theory. Now, do you see what this law professor is saying? She's saying that true friendship across racial lines, especially across the black-white divide, is not only impossible, it's dangerous. That's what she gets at by the end of that paragraph. This line of thinking comes from critical theory. But it isn't just found in different secular publications that are out there by law professors at secular universities. No, we've seen that many Christians have gone down this path of thinking in critical theory as well. And more often than not, it leads to an abject rejection of the truth of God's word. Take Dr. Christina Cleveland as an example. Now, Christina Cleveland was platformed by evangelical Christians after publishing her book, Disunity in Christ, through InterVarsity Press in 2013. And in her book, she was urging Christians to set, a, to set aside their differences in order to pursue true love. So far, so good, right? That's what we want to see. We want to see us setting aside differences, working through differences, pursuing love together, pursuing unity in the Lord. So far, so good. But I want you to see that this is a normal trajectory that we see happening in the culture. As soon as people start to buy into these ideas, it seems to only be a matter of years before they're totally off into something completely unchristian. In 2016, she's published by Christianity Today, still well within the camp. And then as recent as 2018, well-known pastors Thabidi Anabwile and Isaac Adams endorsed her 2013 work. But then by 2022, Cleveland published her most recent book, which is titled, God is a Black Woman. She rejects that that God that she now calls white male God, because it was a God that was created by white men. And she's devoted the rest of her life to the so-called sacred black feminine deity. She writes this in her book. The liberation of all black women requires the dismantling of all systems of oppression, White supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, and more and more than anything, we must eradicate the transphobia within ourselves and our communities. For if God is a black woman, then she is a black trans woman, obviously. Okay, where does this stuff come from, friends? The answer is critical theory. So second, what is critical theory? What is this? Critical theory is an academic field of study that if you go back and trace its roots, which Shenvey and Sawyer do really excellently in their book here, the roots come from Karl Marx, who founded the system of Marxism. Now, I'm not going to go into all the history this morning, but again, if you want to see it, pick up this book. But suffice it to say this morning that critical theory has developed over time, beginning with some ideas from Marxism, not full Marxism, but some of the ideas of Marxism that were then picked up and developed in a school in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s. And since the 1920s, there's been a number of figures like Antonio Gramsci, Paulo Freire, Pierre Bordeaux, Michel Foucault, and and many others have contributed ideas that have been compiled into what we could call contemporary critical theory. Now, here's what you need to know, and this is an important point. Not a single one of these people are trying to work from a Christian worldview. Every one of these people are seeking to make sense of the world through their own human reasoning rather than going to God's truth. And so what we should expect then is grave error. Because this is exactly the kind of autonomous human reasoning that Paul is warning about when he talks about philosophies according to human tradition in Colossians 2.8. Those sorts of heresies that come from human philosophy are always directly related to people trying to reason their way into understanding the world without God's word. That's where heresy comes from. That's where it comes from. So contemporary critical theory, or the ideas most prolific today, can't really be put into a concise definition because one of their big claims is that there's no such thing as an absolute objective truth. So their claims are always shifting a little bit. It's not a system where you can just pin it down. It's kind of like nailing Jello to a wall, so to speak. Always changing. But Shimby and Sawyer, in their book, reduce the beliefs down to four markers of critical theory. And I'm going to lay those out for us quickly this morning to provide Christian wisdom, I hope, as we go along. Now, the first idea that is common in critical theory is an the idea known as the social binary, the social binary. Critical theory teaches that all society is divided into groups, and some of these groups are oppressed groups, and some of the groups are oppressor groups. These groups exist along the lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, age, religion, and a growing list of accepted identity markers. And every social group is at war with an opposite social group to some extent. And one of these social groups can be identified as the oppressed or social minority group, while the other group can be identified as the oppressor or social majority group. So, for example, race is an identity marker and racism is the oppression. And whites oppress people of color. Class is an identity marker and rich people oppress the poor. Biological sex is an identity marker, and men oppress women. Sexuality is an identity marker, and heterosexuals oppress homosexuals. And we can go on and on, but get the idea. So oppressor groups have and exercise their privilege in society over the oppressed without even realizing it. Now, to add to this, we should also, according to critical theory, be aware of something called intersectionality that's in society. Intersectionality states that there are varying levels of oppression that can be identified by determining how many oppressed groups a person is a part of. So a black trans woman is more oppressed than just a black woman. And according to critical theory, our sensitivities should be most directed towards those who have the greatest amount of oppressed identity markers. Okay, so according to this way of thinking, Oprah who's a black woman who's valued at over $2 billion would be an oppressed person. But then a white person, a white man perhaps, who's living in North Carolina, struggling below the poverty line, struggling to even be able to feed his family, he would be defined as an oppressor simply because of the group that he's a part of. So that's how the system works. According to the social binary then, I and people like me, would be considered the worst sort of oppressor, because I'm a white, middle class I wouldn't quite be in like top two percent rich guys. so that's like the one area I get off the hook. But I'm a white middle-class, heterosexual, cisgender, able-bodied adult Christian man who comes from a lineage of colonizers. So I am the worst kind of person, according to this understanding of critical theory, that divides everything up into these kind of oppressed and oppressor sort of groups. And in fact, according to critical theory, you shouldn't listen to anything that I say because I'm almost certainly exercising my hegemonic power even right now, which is the next marker of critical theory that we're going to get to. But I just want to mention a couple areas of why Christians should reject this sort of social binary. One, remember, they're not working from a Christian worldview whatsoever. And so that means that they have no concept of human sin. The problem in the world, according to this worldview, is not human sin. It's not human brokenness, according to our rebellion, both personal and corporate, against a holy and righteous God. The problem is, let's forget about God, and let's just try to bring everybody into these equal levels of equality without having any category for sin whatsoever. And so what that ends up doing is it ends up classifying people according to categories that credit righteousness to them on the basis of whether or not they're an oppressed or oppressor. And so righteousness in this way of thinking, you're a more righteous person if you're a person who lands in one of the more oppressed groups. And you're a less righteous person not on the basis of anything that you do. This has nothing to do with individual, personal, moral living. It has everything to do with whether or not you're classified in a particular group or not. This is not the way that Christianity sees or views the problems in the world. We go to the Bible and we see the fundamental problem of every impartiality. The fundamental problem of every true oppression that's in the world. The fundamental problem of slavery and Jim Crow and of all of the atrocities that were committed against Native Americans is not this dynamic between oppressed and oppressor that somewhat hopelessly exists for all eternity. The problem is people are broken and sinful. They do horrific things in the name of promoting their own agenda. And so the worst possible thing that we can do is start looking into someone and say, promote yourself more because you're part of some sort of oppressed group. What that will end up doing is is leading to an endless exchange of oppressed and oppressors. Because the oppressed will become the oppressors. It's not from a Christian worldview. And our Bibles give us the answers to these sorts of problems. So we're not saying that there's not problems in society that need to be dealt with. We're saying that we need to reject this system that is godless, known as critical theory, and work through these issues through a biblical worldview. Now let's move on to the second marker, hegemonic power. Here's a definition of hegemony according to a couple of critical theorists themselves. Hegemony refers to the control of the ideology of a society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. Ideology refers to the stories, myths, explanations, definitions, and rationalizations that are used to justify inequality between the dominant and minoritized groups. The key element of hegemony is that it enables domination to occur with the consent of the minoritized group rather than by force. The minoritized group accepts their lower position in society because they come to accept the rationalizations for it. Okay, so basically, hegemony refers to the hard-to-see power dynamics that are at work in every culture, whereby groups who have the power seek to maintain their power by belittling or tricking the oppressed groups into maintaining the status quo. Let's just keep everything the same. Everything's good. Now, we could take this idea, and we'd actually apply some of this idea truthfully to certain real oppressions that have happened in U.S. history. One example is under Jim Crow. Under Jim Crow, whites and blacks were made to drink from separate water fountains. And the narrative that was given by whites was that doing so was more hygienic and profitable for both races. So in theory, a black woman could have been standing in line at the water fountain and could easily think that things are just supposed to be this way. This is actually good for society. This is just for my hygienic good. This is a narrative that was crafted, friends, by whites to convince blacks to accept that we should just embrace the oppression and not recognize it. Okay, so that's an example of a hegemonic structure that is really evil. And that according to our biblical reasoning of what is just and good and beautiful and true, we can see that and say, yes, that's wicked that that story was told. But the problem with critical theory is that they don't consistently apply a biblical understanding of oppression to begin with. According to critical theory, hegemony is used for oppression. That's why the hegemony exists. But oppression in critical theory is not defined as the true exercise of tyranny of a ruling group. Instead, they redefine oppression to be unidentifiable daily acts that are just embedded in society Not by tyrannical power, but by social norms. Okay, now, let me just show why this is a a dangerous way of thinking. I'm going to just lay the Christian cards out here for us. Critical theory wants no social norms at all. Because social norms lead to oppression. Social norms are the result of hegemonic power. And so we got to get rid of all the social norms. And not only social norms... We got to get rid of every power hierarchy existing in the world. That's the problem. The problem is that there are hierarchies in the world. So any social hierarchy and any social norm needs to be done away with. Those things are the problem. That is oppression. Oppression is these social norms in a critical theory way of thinking. So basically, the thought is that no one should be constrained by society from living however they want to live. And the thought is that all authority structures need to be out of the way of the individual who wants to live however he wants to live. And so the only way to achieve this within a critical theory way of thinking is to dismantle every social norm in society. And that's their goal. We need to dismantle the family. We need to dismantle the idea of male and female. We need to dismantle the idea of biblical sexuality. We need to dismantle every absolute standard. And those who tell you that you should live a certain way, they should be labeled as oppressors. Wicked people telling you that you should live by a norm. Their norm. That they're trying to protect, to protect their own power. You see the danger here, church? I hope you're seeing this. This way of thinking is completely incompatible with Christianity. Because Christianity believes in an absolute God who has determined social norms that will lead to human flourishing. In fact, rejecting God's norms leads to destruction both in this life and in the next. And in addition, God has given social hierarchies to us for our good. So we're going to see that as we walk through the book of Colossians. Social norms, social hierarchies given by the one true God as a, re, a way for mankind to flourish. We're going to see wives are called to submit to their husbands. It's a social norm and a social hierarchy given by God. Children are called to submit to their parents. That's a social norm and a social hierarchy given by God. But critical theory would tell you that's ageism. That children should be free to make whatever decisions they want on their own without the consent of their parents at all. That bond servants, we see, are called to submit to their masters. And all of this is because, in the most ultimate sense, we're submitting to our one Lord who is Christ. We have a master in heaven. I hope what you see is that if we embrace critical theory, what we end up doing is determining that God is the worst oppressor of all. And that's why we have to identify this as the heresy that it is. Because if God is in any way belittling me or giving me norms or giving me social hierarchies or telling me that I have to submit to his ways, his laws, if God is in any way trumping my own personal autonomy, then he is an oppressor. And I should not worship him, I should hate him. And that tends to be the trajectory of people who buy into this stuff and reason through it rightly over time. But according to critical theory, like I already said, you shouldn't take my word for it because I'm part of the oppressor group, which leads to the next mark. Third, lived experience. Third, lived experience. It's probably going to be the last one we get to today. We won't get to the fourth. We're going to hit on this one briefly for the sake of time, but it's really a big element within this. Lived experience is how oppressed people escape their oppression. They gain enlightenment as to their oppressed condition... And that's known as their lived experience. So Shimbi and Soli write this. Lived experience gives oppressed people special access to truths about their oppression. Therefore, they have the innate authority to speak these truths, and people from oppressor groups should defer to their knowledge. Okay, so critical theory rejects the idea that there is objective knowledge that exists outside of human activity. Instead, in critical theory, knowledge is just a social project. Knowledge is something that we gain as we build a society together. Now, remember, in this system, there's no room for a biblical God who is truth. There's no room for an absolute God who is the source of all truth in and of himself. There's no God in this system. So if we want to understand oppression, we can't look to the Bible. We need to listen to those who are part of oppressed groups. In fact, in this system, members of oppressed groups are a purer version of humanity. They have a deeper sense of truth than the people who are part of the oppressor groups. And it's a responsibility of the oppressed to, according to one author, restore to the oppressors the humanity that they lost in the exercise of their oppression. And so oppressed people use their lived experience to be a sort of prophetic voice in culture that denounces all of the unknown wicked ways of the oppressors. So they're the ones who speak out, who get the platform, who say, you are a wicked person. Here's one example of what this looks like. In 2018, the late theologian and pastor Timothy Keller wrote an article in the New York Times entitled, Historic Christian Positions on Social Issues Don't Match Up with Contemporary Political Alignments. That was a long time, but just trust me, he wrote it. A woman named Lisa Sharon Harper, who's a self-proclaimed Christian, who's followed this same trajectory as many others into critical theory, responded to that article on her public Facebook in this way. How, all caps, incredibly privileged for Keller, a rich white man whose ministry targets rich people to fashion himself as judge of whether or not injustice rises to the level of oppression. No, the only ones with divine authority... To define the bounds of oppression are the oppressed themselves. Oppressed and colonized people wrote every single word of the Bible. The Jewish people were colonized people. Jesus himself was a brown, indigenous, colonized man. Not a person who, who the scripture was written by or originally written for is in the social location of Tim Keller. The only person in scripture who comes close to the social location of Tim Keller was Pilate. Keller has no authority to speak or teach on justice. His silence, when called on to speak, helped pave America's path to white nationalism. Okay, if you're in the social media world, you know that kind of stuff is normal. There. And church, I hope you see how very dangerous and wrong this way of thinking is. It's so contrary to what we see Paul calling for in the new humanity in Colossians. This is a fundamentally different worldview. Indeed, it is a different religion altogether. We do not reject that we can't learn some things from our lived experience. Okay, that's not what we're saying. Should we share lived experience with one another, share stories, swap different ideas, share about our lives, our past, our culture, our history? Yes, absolutely. Can we learn things through lived experience? Yes, absolutely we can. We don't reject that, but... Our lived experience cannot serve as the absolute standard of what is true and what is false. Christians are people who let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We're going to see that in Colossians 3.16. We are a people who are conformed to the truth that is outside of us, not within us. We are a people who are conformed by the knowledge of God that comes through his revelation of himself in the Bible. So can we gain experience from lived experience? Yes. Can we learn from each other's lived experience? Yes. But is that lived experience the source of the most important truth? Emphatically, no. Our absolute standard of truth in the church, friends, is the Bible. In a Christian community where a white person cannot rebuke a black person according to Scripture and a black person cannot rebuke a white person according to Scripture is not a new humanity community. The Bible gives us wisdom for how to live our lives together with one another. So we go to the Bible as our source of absolute truth. And we deal with problems justly. We talk these things out. We open up the conversation. We say, okay, you're having this issue that probably does have something to do with your lived experience, and I've got a different lived experience and have this issue. Let's get around the table, talk about it, and go to God's word together and work this out. And at times compromise. But we are going to the standard of truth We're not submitting to the ideas of where the fallen world says that truth ought to be found. We want to be a just society, but just according to God's word. We want to be a true society, but truth according to the absolute standard of truth, not truth according to some sort of subjective inner knowing of lived experience. My lived experience submits to God's word, no matter what. All right. Like I said, we're not going to get to that fourth mark, but I'm just going to close with this. How then are we as Christians supposed to live together in multicultural community? For all of its ills, we have to affirm that critical theory at least recognizes that there's a problem in society. We have to say, at least you recognize something's wrong and you're trying to figure out some way to deal with it. But their mechanisms and their methods are all wrong because they don't come from God's word and God's revelation. We know as the church that the problem is human sin. They think that the problem is their own definition of oppression. We know that all men are born into sin, and thus we all fight selfishly to have our own way. That's the fallen condition that Satan uses in order to keep us fighting. So what then is the way forward in all this? How do we have this kind of new humanity community that Paul is talking about, where here there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all to us, and he's in all of us. We're going to consider the way forward a lot more next week. So come back for more next week. But I'm just going to read next week's text for us so that we can see God's word gives us light and how we live in community together, even multicultural community. Look with me, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Not requiring justice. Forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Friends, there's so much more that could be said on this topic, and there's so much more that needs to be said on this topic. In fact, I hope that this opens up an ongoing conversation on race if it has not been happening already. I hope this isn't the closing of a conversation, but the opening of a conversation. Multicultural community can be really, really hard, but I want you to see that it's worth it. It is worth the difficult conversations. It is worth the awkward moments. It is worth working through the intentional and accidental offenses that we commit towards one another. Because remember, Christ has become our all and he is in all. He's in you and he's in me. And that's true whether you're white or black or brown. That's true whether you're from Haiti or Myanmar or Jordan or Taiwan or Brazil or Mexico or Germany or the great nation of Texas. (laughs) He's in us all if we are in him. And So we have a call to walk together with our minds and our hearts fixed on our North Star, which is Christ, church. Christ Jesus and his word. May we do that in his name, giving thanks to the Father through him. Let me pray. Father, help us. We want to be a countercultural community. We want to be a community held together by the truth of your word, which puts our Christ on such glorious display. We want to hold fast to Jesus together. We want to love each other the way that the Bible talks about here. But we need your help to do that. God, I pray that even as we take this Lord's Supper, it would just be such a sweet, sweet expression of our unity together in Christ. Christ is our all. We thank you that he is in us because of you resurrecting us from the dead. May we live in that truth in every way in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.